Well, if you are new with us or maybe you haven't been here in a while, welcome or welcome back. We're glad that you're here. We love extending our arms out a little further and welcoming more people into the Grace Spring family. At the end of last calendar year, we were praying through where God might be leading us as a church to be, and we really felt his leading to take us through the Bible in its entirety in this calendar year. And so we started at the beginning in Genesis, and we're taking us all the way through Revelation um, as well. And so we are continuing in that journey today, and we're going to learn in the midst of a godless, an increasingly godless society, there is a God-fearing teenager named Daniel who displayed incredible courage and displayed three character traits that we can learn from today in our society in which we live. And before we jump into the book of Daniel, I just have to ask, how many people were involved in VBS this week? How many people? Are, yeah, that's right. You can make some noise. Good. So VBS is Vacation Bible School, and this place was a riot, you guys. I mean, this was rowdy in here. There was 150 kids in here every night, five nights, and uh, a bunch of volunteers, over 50 volunteers were here. Kids came to faith for the first time this week. It was awesome. And right over here, Friday night, we baptized nine kids right here on Friday night. It was amazing. Yes. And um, about half of those kids don't go to Grace Spring. And so it's such an awesome way to reach out to the community. So thank you to all of you. In this stage, you can see there's still some stains up here. This stage is still wet from slime. There was some green slime up here. And there was somebody that wasn't planning on being slimed, that had my clothes on, that was completely slimed in green slime right here. And so whoever left the gray gym shorts in the lost and found, thank you so much. Really appreciate that. It's in our washer right now, and we'll return it if you care to come and find it. Because it's really not lost and found, it's lost and lost, because it's not really found. Anyway, um, but as we get started this morning, I have a question for you. Have you ever, or have you ever heard somebody start a sentence out like this? Back in my day, we used to or man, when I was a kid, we just totally, or man, when I grew up where I was at, we took, you know, I don't know about you, but I find myself saying that. And I was fortunate to grow up in a Christian home in the Chicagoland area, about four miles um, from O'Hare Airport. And I remember as a kid, when I was about 10 is when I first felt like I had the world at my fingertips because I had a bike and I knew how to use it, you know? And so here's a picture of me at 10 years old. And uh, yeah, uh, yeah, it's okay. There's that. And then here's my family uh, when I was a kid uh, growing up. And I just remember we would stay up late. We'd get on our bikes, man, and we would just ride wherever. We would just go somewhere, and our parents didn't know where we were going. And we'd be out riding bikes, and we'd be playing baseball at the end of a cul-de-sac until it got dark where you couldn't see anymore. And then after it got dark and you couldn't see, then we'd play Ghost in the Graveyard. And we'd be on somebody else's neighborhood, and we'd be hiding behind houses on porches of people we didn't know and just different places where we could find a good hiding spot. And nobody seemed to care. We had a great time. And, and, and having fun in that way. And as I got older, we started making some stupid decisions too. My friend Brad and I, I remember we found like this brush underneath a bridge. And I remember we lit that on fire. And just because why wouldn't you light something on fire as you were a kid? And we lit that on fire. And I remember we rode over to Brad's house afterwards. And his mom found out about it because it was like a couple hundred feet from his house. And um, he was getting in big trouble. And I was like, glad I got a bike. I'm out of here. Got on the bike and went home. But I didn't realize she had already called my parents. And my dad was a firefighter um, in, in town, so that didn't go well for me. But 
as time went on, you know, my friends, I was trying to stay this way, growing up in a Christian home and really trying to follow after God. My friends continued to move further and further away and making uh, decisions that I didn't agree with and my family didn't raise me to participate in. And it became increasingly more difficult to stand up um, uh, for my faith. And when I look at the world now, I mean, here's my family now with our four kids. They're sitting right down here. And I, I look at the world now, and I sometimes, to be honest with you, I sometimes grieve for what we've lost. You guys ever feel that way when you look at the world and you're like, man, I, I almost don't want to talk about, you know, walking to school both ways in the snow and flip-flops. and all. I mean, I almost don't want to talk about the days when I grew up because I miss the, the innocence of some of those days. I look at the world now and I'm like, what kind of world are our kids inheriting? You know, I look at the... the, the the violence and the rage that people have for each other. And I look at the degradation of our society and moving further and further away from God. Even the name Jesus is being shoved out of a lot of conversations. Whether that's in the schools, whether that's in government, whether that's in private industry, or wherever it is, Jesus and talking about Jesus and talking about our faith is something that's becoming increasingly more difficult to do and stand up for. And I look at that and I'm concerned. And maybe for you as a parent, you're concerned. Or maybe as a grandparent, you're thinking about your grandkids. Or maybe as a leader of a team, you're leading a team at work and you're thinking about that team that you care so desperately for and that they're working with you. And you're like, man, what kind of world are they inheriting? And I don't know about you, but I find myself sometimes going, I just feel like I'm kind of making it up as I go along. You know, you go through COVID and you're like, this is crazy town. You know, and you're like, how do we get through this? And, and through these times that be becoming increasingly difficult to stand up for our faith. And I'll share with you that if we think we have it bad, there's a guy in the Bible named Daniel that had it so much worse. So much worse. And we're going to learn about that. And so I want us to turn in our Bibles to Daniel chapter 1 as we uh, read from Daniel. But as we're doing that, I'm going to take a couple of minutes and I'm going to set up what we're about to read. Because I always find for me when I learn the context of what we're about to read, it helps me really understand the text. And so let me uh, help us uh, catch up to where we are. So at this point in our journey through the Bible, the Israelites were in the land that God had promised them. They were hanging out there. They were ruled by some kings, and they were there um, in that land. And God said to them, um, I've got a number of rules um, that I want you to live by. One of those is I want you to make sure that you're not forming alliances with other neighboring countries. So here on the map, if you could look, there's Israel, kind of in the middle, a little bit off to the left. Um, there's Israel right there in the time that we're studying. And so Israel is right there, Jerusalem. You can kind of see that up there. And so there's other neighboring countries around with Egypt and Babylon and different places like that. And, and God said specifically, I know it's popular in your day. I know that it's commonplace to form alliances with other countries. In the event that you're invaded or attacked, you've got some allies to stand on your behalf. But I've got you. I'm going to protect you. I don't want you to form alliances with other countries. And they didn't listen, and they started forming alliances. They started out as a country that's all about following God, and they've been drifting further away from that, and they started forming alliances. And God even sent a messenger to the king at the time and said, don't form alliances, and uh, otherwise you're going to pay for it. And so here's uh, what was said in 2 Kings um, 2014. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah, and said to him, what did these men say? Now, what did these men say is because Hezekiah was in Israel right there, 
and he was inviting men from Babylon. You can see Babylon over there. He was inviting men from Babylon, starting to build relationships with them. And so Isaiah is going up to King Hezekiah and is like smacking him upside the head. So, wait a minute. We weren't supposed to form alliances and build relationships with neighboring countries, and that's exactly what we're doing. And so let's see what he says. And he says, so what did you say, what did these men say, and where did they come from? And Hezekiah, the king from Israel, he says, they have come from a far country, from Babylon, he said. What have they seen in your house, Isaiah said. And Hezekiah answered, they've seen all that's in my house. There's nothing in my storehouse that I did not show them. In other words, God said, don't form alliances, don't invite people in. He's like, oh yeah, I gave him a tour. I showed him everything. You know, all the stuff that we have to honor God and all that stuff. I showed all, I showed all of that to him. And Isaiah's probably like, you're an idiot, you know. And so here's what Isaiah said. I'm going to put it up on the screen for us. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and all that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. In other words, all the stuff you just showed them, you showed them where to find it and it's going to be taken away. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons, who will come from you or from your lineage, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. And so this is a warning saying, you've not been listening to God. Trouble is coming your way. God had another rule that he wanted them uh, to live by, and he said, I don't want you to worship false idols. I want you to trust in me and worship me alone. And he told Israel, he said, Israel, I want you to do that. And they were worshiping false idols and not worshiping God. And so here's another warning. Therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, because you have not obeyed my words, behold, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, in our map, my servant. Isn't that weird? Let me read that again. Therefore, says the Lord of hosts, because you've not obeyed my words, saying to Israel, because you've not obeyed my words, I will send for all the tribes of the north, declares the Lord, and for Nebuchadnezzar, a godless, crazy king, which we're going to learn about in a minute, the king of Babylon, my servant, so God's using him as a servant, and I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these surrounding nations. And so God said, uh, don't have other gods before me, and they were worshiping false uh, gods and false idols. God said, don't form alliances, and they were forming alliances. And so now They've been warned, and now let's find out what happens. Turn in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 1, and let's see what happened to the Israelites during the time they weren't obedient to God, and how Daniel, this God-fearing teenager, stood up for God and practiced three character traits that he faced during this terrible time. Daniel was written by Daniel, and it was written at the end of his life. He was kind of looking back on how God had provided for him. So the first six chapters, of which we're going to be studying today, is his encounters, Daniel's encounters with this Babylonian culture. The second six chapters, 7 through 12, is visions and dreams that God gave Daniel about the future for us that's yet to come, prophecy that's yet to come. And so we're going to be focusing on those first six chapters. And we're not going to stand because we'll take this a section at a time. And so Daniel uh, chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, of Judah, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Of course he did. So there's a king, right? King Nebuchadnezzar a while ago, now it's king 
uh, Jehoiakim of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came into Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar. So in other words, Nebuchadnezzar brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Of course he came in and ransacked, and he knew where to find those vessels because he got a full <laughs> all-out tour. And he was shown everything in the house and everything that was put in there to honor the God of Israel. Hezekiah showed him, so now this next king is dealing with, uh, with some of that. Look at verse 3. Then the king, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of nobility, youth without blemish. Again, nobility. Remember how it said earlier that some of your very own kids will be taken from you, as we read earlier. Youth without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. And so it's believed by many commentators that these kids that were taken, so if you can picture, here's Israel over here, here's Babylon over here, these Babylonians come into Israel, grab all that stuff that's in the storehouse for the God of Israel, bring it back to Babylon, and put it in their storehouse to honor their false gods, then they come and grab a wave of people, some of which were nobility, some of which were youth, grabbed them and brought them out of Israel, kidnapped them, chained them up, and brought them in and put them in Babylon. Now over here, these youths, the commentaries would, would uh, all pretty much ascribe to the fact that they were likely 14 to 17 years old. And here's 14 to 17-year-old boys that grew up in God-fearing homes and grew up worshiping the God of Israel and were named after the God of Israel. Each one of their names meant something that honors uh, God and has attributes of God's character are pulled out of that, ripped out of that, and put in this culture that's extremely decadent, extremely godless, and over the top. And so that's what we're dealing with right now. Not only were these kids kidnapped, but we also read here the chief eunuch, and we'll learn in a minute that not only were these 14 to 17-year-old boys kidnapped out of this, but they were likely castrated to become eunuchs. And if you don't know what castrated means, um, please email me directly at brian.tima at gracespringchurch.org, and I would love to send you pictures and descriptions of what that's all about. So why would they be castrated? Why would the king castrate um, these boys. He would castrate them because he didn't want them to have any other eyes for women, any possible kids that would take their attention off serving the glorious and almighty King Nebuchadnezzar. And so he wanted their eyes only on him. And so let's find out what happened to these boys in verse 5. The king, speaking of Nebuchadnezzar, assigned them, speaking of the young men, so the king assigned them a daily portion of the food that he ate and of the wine that he drank they were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. So in other words, for three years, you're going to be indoctrinated in the Babylonian way, and you're going to be discipled with how we want you to live, is basically what is happening. Among these, in verse 6, among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. So basically, he's changing their names now. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. Just like when we 
go into a really rough situation where we go and find kids that maybe are not growing up in the best conditions and we wrap our arms around them, pull them out of those conditions and we bring them over to a God-fearing home and we change their name to attribute how God has provided for them and to change the trajectory of their life. Similar to how we do that, this is the opposite. These boys, these four youth, were in a God-fearing home and serving God and eating and doing well and were ripped out of that home and had their names changed to reflect a pagan God. So these boys are kidnapped, they're castrated, and their names are changed. And they're in a culture. They were used to very basic conditions, very basic food. They were likely very thin. They're likely very strong because they were working a lot and working off of that. And now they were in an incredibly over-the-top culture with the best food and the best wine on the planet. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the crazy King Nebuchadnezzar, was giving them the very best food ever. And as we're going to learn in just a minute, he learned, King Nebuchadnezzar learned, that yeah, I can change their names but I can't change their character. And yeah, I can change their names, but I can't, um, I can't break them, as we're going to learn in just a minute. So learn. let's look at verse 8 to find out what happened when they were offered the king's food. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or the wine that he drank. What is the big deal about eating the king's food? Well, there's a few things. Number one, eating that food was showing ultimate allegiance to great King Nebuchadnezzar. I am now with you, King. I'm, I'm communing with you. I'm eating your food. Secondly, that food was undoubtedly not kosher. Kosher was a diet that God had said to the Israelites, I want you to stay within this uh, diet. And so they were eating that diet. And so uh, Daniel was not going to bend. This is what God told me to live. This is how God told me to live. I am going, I'm resolving in my heart. I am not eating the king's food. And interestingly, there was a lot of other youth, as we learned, that were eating the king's food. You can imagine the peer pressure that Daniel felt. Daniel, just eat it. Just eat it, man. It's just food. It's not a big deal. Just eat the food. Because if you don't eat the food, then we're, you might get the rest of us in trouble, and we don't need that. This is our new life now. We're away from our parents. We're not in that culture anymore. Just eat the food. It's good food, and it's of the king, and I don't want to be uh, killed for it. So first, he didn't want to be in fellowship with the king for eating the food. Secondly, it wasn't with his diet. And then thirdly, it was likely sacrificed to idols. And Daniel did not want to have a part of that. And so he would not, he resolved in his heart that he would not defile himself in that way. But not eating the king's food was drawing a very serious line in the sand. This crazy king, this crazy king was known for um, taking one of, his, one of the officials uh, from Israel and having him watch and he murdered this king's kids right in front of him and then gouged his eyes out. So the last memory he remembers seeing is his own kids being murdered. And then he was also known for putting people over an open fire while they're still alive and burning them. And so by Daniel saying, I'm not going to eat the king's food, that's a big deal. That's a big deal. And so the first character trait that's absolutely remarkable that Daniel displayed, that maybe we can display as well, is grit. Daniel had grit. He resolved in his heart that no matter what, you are not going to break me. I am not going to defile my God. I am not going to turn my back on God. You know, I don't know about you guys, but I like watch when I get a chance to stay at home and watch a movie or something like that. I love watching those movies with like 
you know, guys are like spies, you know, so somebody gets all trained up, it's girl or guy, and they get all trained up, and they're a spy, and they go in this other country, and they're hanging out in this other country, and while they're there, they find out that they're a spy, and so they hang them upside down and do all these things to them and try to shake the country's, their home country's secrets out of them, and they're beating it out of them, trying to get, and they just don't budge. That's grit. No matter what happens, I am not going to give up. And that was Daniel's attitude. No matter what happens, I am not going to defile my God. And he stands up no matter what. And I think for a lot of us, living in this culture is not easy. When the name of Jesus is not welcome at the dinner table, when the name of Jesus is not welcome in your workplace, when the name of Jesus is not welcome around your family members, when it's not welcome in the places where you live, work, and play, it's a whole lot easier just to shave a little bit of our convictions off. Just shave a little bit of that off. Come on, Daniel, what's the big deal? Just eat the food. It's like, come on, what's the big deal? Just all of us are lying about sick time at work. Why don't you just take a couple days off and enjoy time with your family? I mean, all of us are just taking a little bit of extra money, and it's, it's not that big of a deal. Just, we're all doing it. Just shave a little bit of that, those values off. It's not a big deal. And I think we can all learn from Daniel's incredible grit that no matter what, he was going to serve God and serve God alone. So Daniel resolved in his heart not to eat the king's food. But what's amazing to me is how he goes about executing that grit reveals another part of his incredible character. Look at verse 8, the second half of 8. After he decided not to eat the food, therefore he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion on the side of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king. In other words, wait a minute, I don't know about this. You're putting me in a bad position. I'm fearing my lord, King Nebuchadnezzar. I fear my Lord the King who has signed your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are your own age? Again, these other youths are eating the food. The native Babylonians and the Hebrews that were brought over, they were eating the food. I don't want to be blamed for this. So you would endanger my head with the king. In other words, I don't want my head cut off because I'm not feeding you what I was told to feed you. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, Test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you and deal with your servants according to what you see. So the Hebrews would have been skinny. And so basically Daniel's saying, give me vegetables. My God will sustain me and I'll put on some weight like the Babylonians want to see. And so let's look to see what happened. Verse 14. So he listened to them. So in other words, the chief eunuch listened to them in this matter and tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. See, what's amazing about Daniel is he resolved with incredible grit in his heart that he was not going to eat that king's food. But how he went about that was balanced with incredible maturity as he came at that with humility. In every encounter that we see with Daniel, with this uh, ruling Babylon, he came at them with the utmost respect and humility. And so I think the second characteristic, the second character trait that I would like to suggest is to have humility. Is to have humility. Humbly serve where God has placed you. 
Daniel could have complained. Daniel could have just said, this is ridiculous. Daniel could have done all of that, but he didn't. And he humbly served. He would say, oh, oh king, and he would be so respectful and asked to be let out uh, from that. And I think for a lot of us in this room, we probably need to be reminded to serve where we are with humility. But you think for a lot of us, you know, we might work for bosses or work for people that make decisions we don't agree with, whether they believe in God or whether they don't believe in God. If they believe in God and they're making decisions we don't agree with, then we have the utmost more frustration when they're deciding to do things that we don't agree with or we just plain old don't like. And so we don't approach them with humility. We demand that we want what we want when we want it, as we want it. If you lead a team in this room, you know what I'm talking about. If you have been a part of a team and been led by somebody else, you know what I'm talking about. I think we all know. We all have worked for people that make decisions we don't agree with, and we could easily then go before and then uh, say, oh, yeah, whatever, and then go over here and talk behind backs and do all that kind of stuff and create problems and all that stuff and not come back to them in humility with grit saying, I'm not going to move from this. No, I'm not going to lie. No, I'm not going to cheat on my taxes. No, I'm not going to just take a few extra uh, days off or whatever through sick time. No, I'm not going to do that. But we can do that in a way with humility. And Daniel showed us that you can have grit that I'm not going to defile God while also doing it in a humble way. Because here's what Daniel knew that I think sometimes we, we might need to be reminded of. Daniel knew that if he treated these Babylonians like they were God's enemy, it was going to make it far more difficult for them to bend their knee to God and surrender in that way. If it was always hostile and always in that way. And I think for a lot of us, sometimes we're just making posts on Facebook and we're just in people's faces about things and all of that stuff. And what, our people, what people need to see where we live, where we work, and where we play is that absolutely we will not compromise on our beliefs with grit. But they need to see that we're doing that in humility. And when they, when they see that, that is what's going to draw them in to want a relationship with a God that loves them. And so Daniel's showing us that it's possible to have grit while displaying humility. And let's learn what happened to these youth after three years of being indoctrinated in the Babylonian way and eating vegetables and drinking water. Verse 17, as for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and every understanding and, and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. So in other words, the king, basically they stood before the king, they had graduated from their discipleship school, from their indoctrination school, and the king was quizzing them and asking them basically if they knew things. And these guys had absorbed all of that Babylonian culture three years. This is not like they were castrated and kidnapped and forced to do all this stuff in a couple of weeks or in a day. Sometimes for us, I think we're like, man, somebody makes us do something we don't like and we don't agree with and we just buckle and complain about it right away. These guys were in this thing for three years, and then they had to stand before the king and prove that they were worthy of serving the king, and then the king put them to work. And so this is pretty much the end of chapter one. I'm going to summarize for us chapters two through five, and you can turn in your Bible to chapter six, because we'll pick up there in just a second. So basically, these four Hebrew boys passed the test, 
of being indoctrinated into that school. And then they were put into service for the king and they were called upon when the king needed them. And at this point in our story, Nebuchadnezzar, the king, had trouble sleeping and he had some really weird dreams. And he started calling on some of his officials to interpret the dreams. And none of his native Babylonians could do it. And so they, uh, upon Daniel being called, um, he was able to interpret some of those dreams. God gave him the vision and the power to interpret some of those dreams to which Nebuchadnezzar was grateful, so grateful that he actually honored and praised the God of Israel because of how those dreams were interpreted. But that didn't last long because Nebuchadnezzar built some tall idols after that and he would have the officials blow a trumpet. And so here I am in Babylon, Babylon, King Nebuchadnezzar, and he puts up this really tall idol and he says, hey, officials, blow a trumpet. And when the trumpet sounds, just so everybody knows, no matter where you are, what you're doing, stop what you're doing, and you need to bow and, uh, and, and pray to this idol and worship this idol. And so he did that. And, uh, and then what happened at that point is those Daniel's three friends, Daniel's actually not mentioned in this story, but Daniel's three friends, when that was enacted and they had to bow to this idol, would not bow. Their grit kept them. They would not bow uh, to that idol. And so the king was furious and had said previously, if you don't bow to this idol, you'll be thrown into the furnace. And because these, these three uh, youth would not bow down to that idol, and King was, Nebuchadnezzar was so angry, he had his officials heat up that furnace seven times hotter than normal because it was out in public, and this is a public thing, and he's not going to lose face. Had it, he heated up seven times hotter, threw these three boys in the furnace, and God protected them. And they came out, they were not burnt, they were not scratched, they were not hurt at all, and their clothes didn't even smell like smoke when they came out, as it says in the text. And again, Nebuchadnezzar, wow, what a God, and all that kind of stuff. But that didn't last long either. Nebuchadnezzar had another dream that he invited Daniel to come interpret. And Daniel interpreted the dream and said to Nebuchadnezzar, here's what this dream means. This dream, and this is, you know, Daniel coming up, sir, King Nebuchadnezzar, literally in his humility, sir, I'm just telling you the truth on this dream. This dream is basically telling you that your power is going to be stripped from you. Your power as a king, your, your triumph as a king is going to be stripped from you and you're going to be out, put away from people like a cow in the field. Imagine saying that to the king, Nebuchadnezzar. And what he said is exactly what happened because then God struck Nebuchadnezzar with something called boanthropy. Boanthropy is actually a psychological disorder in which the person believes they are a cow. So Nebuchadnezzar was put away from people, he was on all fours, and he was eating grass in a field like a cow. And then Nebuchadnezzar's idiot son, Belshazzar, took over the kingdom and was just as bad as Nebuchadnezzar. And you remember all that stuff. You remember when Hezekiah brought the Babylonians in and said, look at all this stuff in our house of God. Look at all the stuff. We have all the gold goblets and all the stuff. We have all this stuff to worship our God and to honor our God. You know, remember all that stuff we talked about? Well, the Babylonians came in and besieged all of it, right? And brought it all back in. And so Belshazzar, the, the son of King Nebuchadnezzar, after Nebuchadnezzar was a cow, um, he, uh, his son took over. And Belshazzar's like, remember all that stuff we took? Get it all out. Bring it all out. All those gold goblets and all that stuff that, you know, was the God of Israel. Let's, let's, let's throw a big party and let's celebrate and worship our pagan gods. So he brought all that gold out. He brought all that stuff out and had a big party. And God struck him dead that night. So Belshazzar, dead. So here's Nebuchadnezzar, cow. Belshazzar, dead. And then there's a guy named Darius that becomes king. And that's where we pick up our story. And so turn 
uh, to chapter 6, and we're going to pick up our story because there's one more attribute of Daniel's character that may be, arguably, one of the most important aspects of his character. We're going to learn that he gets a chance to display. Chapter 6, verse 1, it pleased Darius, the new king, to set over the kingdom 120 satraps to be throughout the whole kingdom. Satraps are just a bunch of officials, and over them three high officials of whom Daniel was one. So in other words, 120 people leading, Daniel was one of the three leading the 120, to whom these satraps should give an account, so they should be accountable to these three leaders, so that the king might suffer no loss. Then this Daniel became distinguished above all the other high officials and satraps because an excellent spirit was in him. So in other words, Daniel was being seen not only as one of the 120, not just the three, now Daniel's the second in command under Nebuchadnezzar, or under Darius, over the whole, uh, the whole uh, kingdom. And the king planned to send him over the whole kingdom. Then the high officials and the satraps sought to find a ground for complaint against Daniel with regard to the kingdom, but they could find no ground for complaint or any fault, because he was faithful, and no error or fault was found in him. Then these men said, we shall not find any ground for complaint against Daniel unless we find it in connection with the law of his God. The word had gotten out. Daniel's been around for a number of years by this point. The word had gotten out that Daniel was faithful to his God and his God alone. So the only way they're going to catch him is if they do something that puts him in a position that he has to defile his God. So look at verse 6. Then these high officials and satraps came by agreement to the king and said to him, O King Darius, O sir, your majesty, you're buttering him all up, live forever. All the high officials of the kingdom, the priests, or the prefects and the satraps, the counselors and the governors are agreed that the king should establish an ordinance and enforce an injunction that whoever makes petition to any god or man for 30 days, except to you, O king, O sir, O majesty, shall be cast into the den of lions. Now, O king, establish the injunction and sign the document so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and the Persians, which can't be revoked. If you did something in the law of the Medes and the Persians, that was it. There was no like going back on that. So he said, make sure we do it according to the law of the Medes and Persians. Therefore, King Darius signed the document and injunction. So basically, this is their last ditch effort. All these satraps and all these high officials, they're done with Daniel. They don't want him to have this position, just like we don't want to report to somebody that doesn't believe in God. Uh, they didn't want to report to somebody that believed in God. He's messing everything up, and they can't get him to break, and so they wanted him out of there. And so here's what Daniel did in verse 10. When Daniel knew that the document had been signed, of course Daniel knew. He was second in command in the kingdom. He went to his house where he had windows in his upper chamber open toward Jerusalem. He got down on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. So you might look at that and you might say, wow, that was pretty clear. Don't pray to anybody. Don't do any of that kind of stuff except for the king, oh, great King Darius. And so Daniel's just going to go with his windows open and just go there and pray. That's bold. That's kind of like snubbing his nose, saying, look at my windows are open, snubbing his nose to the king and saying, I'm not doing that. Where's Daniel's humility? I thought he had humility. I actually wouldn't read it like that. Let me read you my words of how I might interpret this verse. Daniel just found out that the place he lives in Babylon has just enacted an official law that compromises his allegiance to God. So he needs to go talk to God about it, just like he had done previously with everything else in his life. If you look at that verse, it says he got down on his knees and prayed three times a day and 
or got on his knees three times a day and prayed and gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. This was a common practice of Daniel to get before his God and pray. So yes, his windows were open to to Babylon. Yes, everything was was there and he was doing that in sort of a kind of publicish way because he was being seen, but he wasn't doing that to to snub his nose at the king. He was doing that because that's what he was doing because he had grit to follow God no matter what. And so the third aspect of Daniel's character that I think is tremendous is his dependence on God. His dependence on God. And his dependence on God cost him because after, uh, of course, he went back to that room. He's continuing to pray. They knew where to find him. All those guys came over. They found him praying. They told the king. They brought him in. And the king threw him in the den of lions. And these lions, God shut the mouths of the lions and Daniel was, was unscathed and untouched. And even King Darius was like, wow, there's a God. That's amazing. So Daniel had dependence on God. And I think for a lot of us, we might be able to get around the grit situation and be like, yeah, yeah, I want to stand for something. Man, I wanna, I'm going to just have some grit that I'm going to stand for God. And I, I, I think we can get our, our mind around that a little bit or get our head around that. I think the humility part, I think we can get some accountability and we can maybe get there with the, the humility part, but I think actually the, the toughest thing for us, honestly, is dependence. I think in the midst of adversity, we have a hard time being dependent upon anybody except for ourselves. In the United States, we love our independence. We love celebrating our independence, and we should celebrate our independence, but we love saying, I'm free to do whatever I want, and we do whatever I want, whatever we want. And sometimes when we do whatever we want, we do so in a way where it's like, I don't really even want to read what God says about this. I'm just too nervous or too whatever to follow him, so I'm just not going to depend on him fully. And maybe for some of you, coming to church is your dependence on God. You're like, I'm depending on God because I'm coming to church. Daniel was three times a day getting on his knees and fully, fully, fully dependent upon God no matter what the circumstances I'd almost like to say that dependence was the what he was doing in the midst of all of this, and how he did that was with grit and with humility. So Daniel was dependent upon God in the midst of adversity, and he was doing that with humility and with grit. And I think for a lot of us, that dependence upon God is really hard for us. And for some of you hearing this right now, I don't want you to leave here thinking, feeling so much shame that you don't, you're not depending upon God. I know it's hard for you. It's hard for me to fully, fully depend on God. But what I want you to leave here hearing is not you should be, you ought to get in there, feel bad. What I want you to see is God is waiting like this. And he says, I want to put my arms around you. I want you to experience the true peace, the true unconditional selfless love that I have for you. I don't want you to go through this world on your own. I am there for you. And so I don't want you to leave feeling shame that you haven't been depending on God. What I want you to leave with is this idea that God is standing there waiting for you, waiting to embrace you and carry you through this life. When Jesus was on this earth, 
He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. How many people feel like they're laboring through life? How many people feel heavy laden with the burdens of life? For some of us, this idea of being dependent upon God might just be super refreshing to hear because you're tired of being independent. You're tired of trying to make decisions every day for yourself and trying to blast your way through this life and it's really hard and you're lost. Well, there's a God that loves you so much that he sent his son Jesus to die for you and pay the penalty for your sins and just says, just come. Just come to me. In that verse, he says, come to me all who, are labor, all who labor and are heavy laden, I will give you rest. And he says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And you read that and you're like, what is a yoke? Well, Jesus would have been talking to a group of people that would have understood what a yoke was. A yoke was something like a, a picture, a, a leather, like a brown leather, you know, thing they'd put over an ox and then the farmer would stand behind the ox with some ropes, you know, and have like a hoe in the ground and just picture like a, it's hard to picture today with all the rain, but, but like, the, a, like a concrete, almost dirt, you know, sort of thing. And you're plowing through that to try to break up the ground. And that ox is just struggling. That yoke around his neck is just struggling and he's laboring and he's laboring to get through this dirt and he's heavy laden with all of this. You know, maybe that's us. We're just trying to plow through life and figure out life on our own. And Jesus invites us and says, take my yoke upon you. And his yoke means, he was talking to these farmers who understood, taking the double yoke off the shelf putting the smaller one around the smaller ox that's just trying his best to plow through life, putting the other on the older, more mature, stronger, seasoned ox and saying, learn from me. Let's do this together. So they had a double yoke. So that ox, that bigger one, was plowing and pushing into that field and teaching the younger one as they went how it works. And so Jesus says, take my yoke upon you and learn from me. That bigger ox saying, learn from me, let me show you. You don't have to do this by yourself. You don't have to plow through this world and break up the concrete uh, ground and just bust through this. I'm here for you. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so if you're somebody in this room that maybe you're hearing me right now or maybe you're watching online or maybe you're listening to this later on in this week, if you are feeling heavy laden and you're feeling just done trying to plow through life on your own, there's a God that stands there waiting for you. No judgment, no pain, no shame. He wants to put his arms around you and say, I love you. You will find rest for your souls. So I'd encourage you to stop whatever you're doing right now and say, God, I'm turning my life over to you, and I trust you, and I need you. Let me take on your yoke and learn from you. And for those of us Jesus followers listening along, 
Jesus left us in this world as his believers, as his disciples, as his followers for far more than just eating groceries and sucking air, you know, and pursuing our version of the American dream. He left us here to shine the light of Jesus that's inside of us to the world. When Jesus was just about to ascend into heaven, he told his disciples, in a sense telling us, he says, hey, listen, all authority of the whole world has been given to me. And now I'm telling you, I'm giving you the authority to go out and make disciples and share the good news of me to the world. We are the light of the world. We are not here just to hang out for 80 years and then go and be buried in the ground. We're here for a purpose, and I honestly think some of us have forgotten why we're here. We have the opportunity where we live, where we work, where we play to have grit, to resolve that no matter what, you're following Jesus and you're going to put his name out there. You're going to do it with humility, but you're going to do it only with dependence on God. And the world desperately needs that. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. We need to go out there and just let the light of Jesus explode from how we live our life. We need to go out there and show the world just how much Jesus really loves them. That's why we're still breathing. That's why we were left here on this, earth, on this earth. So let's go out with grit and unwaveringly commit to following Jesus. Let's do it in a, in a humble way that shows people how much we love them and how much God loves them. And we can only do it depending on him. Let's pray. Father, how rich is it to take a nice big gulp of your scripture and your words to us and how you want us to live our life. What a privilege it is to be called sons and daughters of the only true living king that deserves our glory. Thank you for giving Daniel the courage to stand up to adversity and show us how we might need to face adversity in our own lives. Help us have the courage and the wisdom to know um, where and when to shine your incredible light to the world. Because even a dim little light in a dark room is a lot of light. Help us be the light of the world for your namesake. In Jesus' name, amen.